Hello, everyone. Tom Fox and Michael DeBernardis, partner at Hughes Hubbard, back for another episode of The Corruption Files. Today, we're going to take up a series of cases that are either called banks behaving badly or if I told you the story, you'd look at me and say, nobody's that stupid. You made that up, Tom. I don't know which will be the title. But, Mike, we have some delicious cases today involving financial institutions. Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse, and Societe Generale, or we're going to call it Sock Gen. So could I ask you to maybe give us some of the background facts of Deutsche Bank? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. And it's interesting, I think. There was only a couple episodes that we talked about the financial institutions in the context of the sons and daughters, prince and princelings cases. This is a very different, these cases we're going to talk about today are very different and have some really interesting facts. For Deutsche Bank, they announced their resolution. It was a a DPA. This was January 2021. So this is a pretty recent case in terms of its resolution. And And this is something I think we'll see with, I believe, all three of the cases. These are, these cases fall in the category of what I call mixed misconduct. So we have FCPA and that's the focus and what we're going to talk about but each of them also involve some other charges, whether wire fraud or securities fraud related charges, basically based on the same conduct. So Deutsche Bank stands out from these other two in one big respect, and that's their resolution involved conduct, similar conduct, but conduct in multiple different countries. A pattern of conduct really revolving around their use of agents, for a lack of a better term. I think they called them business development consultants. And they use these business development consultants in, at the very least, in Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia, Italy, I think potentially China as well. They were selecting as these business development consultants, people who were close to decision makers at state-owned entities or state institutions involved in the financial sector. They were paying them large amounts of money. They were often paying them outside of the established procedures or in ways that avoided their established procedures, or in ways that tricked their established procedures, for lack of a better term. I think if you take Saudi Arabia, for example, they entered a business development consultant contract with a company. The company was owned by the wife of an individual responsible for making decisions for the family office of a Saudi official. So this is, you know, we're a couple steps removed here, right? So we've got a, a Saudi He has a family office that does investments for the the person who is making decisions for that family's office. His wife is the beneficial owner of this business development consultant contract. And, you know, what's interesting about some of these fact patterns, including this one, is for this, Deutsche Bank wasn't charged for a substantive FCPI violation, but rather a books and records violation. And you you can see why, because at least this case, the allegation is that Deutsche Bank entered into this BDC contract to influence decisions of this family office of the Saudi official. Now, that's not the Saudi official operating in his official capacity. That's operating in his personal capacity. But the payments, so there, I think there would be, from a substantive perspective, potentially some difficulty in making a substantive FCPA charge. But from a books and records perspective, because these payments were not recorded appropriately, it was really easy to make a books and records case. And the, the amounts are large. I think the Deutsche Bank made payments think over a million dollars to this business development consultant. And then in a separate instance, provided provided her with 635,000 euros to buy. And so the same pattern played out with respect to Abu Dhabi and these other countries where Deutsche Bank was hiring these business development consultants, either not putting them through due diligence or ignoring positions in, in one instance in, I think it was in Abu Dhabi, the global risk 
committee took a look at one of the business development consultant contracts and that included some representatives from the legal compliance function and they approved it even though there was some indicia of corruption involved with the arrangement in terms of where the person was being paid and all of those risk factors that we often talk about on this feed and others. At the end of the day, the Deutsche Bank entered into a DPA with the Department of Justice, also a cease and desist order with the SEC related to the to similar conduct. The, the SEC also included conduct related to China. One of, one of the interesting things, and I think we'll probably come back to this after I get you your view on it, is the a resolution and Deutsche Bank paid somewhere, if I'm not mistaken, around $130 million all in to resolve these matters. But the way the resolution was framed, they got full cooperation credit and others, but the fine range fell within within the federal sentencing guideline range, although the, the way that they framed it in the DPA was a 25% reduction off of the middle of the sentencing guideline range. So we can come back and talk to that, but I am interested in kind of your thoughts and takeaways from the case. You focused on Saudi and Abu Dhabi. I want to focus on China and Italy for some different lessons. China was a small part of this overall operation, and here the BDC, or Business Development Consultant or Agent, was a friend of the state-owned government or state-owned enterprise official who is involved. And it really, I think, gives us pause in the compliance community to remember that it's not just family, it's friends and family. And even if that specific language is not in the FCPA, we need to be cognizant of establishing or checking on close personal relationships with friends. In Italy, it was a little bit different because they hired, and I'm not sure if they hired him because of his title or his profession, but he was a judge. And he knew about high-income individuals, and he pointed them towards Deutsche Bank for a fee, and bribes were alleged to be paid from that. And so I'm not sure if it was simply because he was a judge and knew those people or he just knew those people, but he was clearly identified as a judicial magistrate in the settlement documents. So it really speaks to the compliance professional that you need to take really a deep dive into the backgrounds of your potential agents on the sales side, I would say in almost every jurisdiction, because at that point, I don't think Italy was viewed as a high-risk jurisdiction. So the, but with the wife and the wife controlling the company where the CD or E was located, and certainly Abu Dhabi, and even in Abu Dhabi, he, the business development consultant was referred to as, quote, the, quote, gatekeeper, end quote to the state-owned enterprise official. So it was pretty clear his role in all of this. But the other thing, Mike, was the settlement documents pointed out the standards Deutsche Bank had in place, and they were rigorous standards. It was documented pre-contractual due diligence, a written contract with the roles and responsibilities of the business development consultant approved by the bank's legal department, a description of services to be performed, compensation and other material terms, payment proportionate to the value of the services received, and review and approval. The problem was they completely disregarded that. There was no review of expertise or qualifications, no determination of whether they're dealing foreign official, in some instances, no contracts. I think it was with the Italian individual services or, or monies were paid above the contract price, sometimes without invoices, and certainly outside the contract. Compensation rates weren't reasonably high. So we had actually a policy and procedure in place. It clearly wasn't followed. One other point I would raise is 
Whatever you may or may not think of Deutsche Bank, they are certainly known for banks behaving badly, and they were recidivist. Yet, they received a 25% discount off their overall fine and penalty. They did not self-disclose, although they were under a monitorship. <laughs> and the they specifically noted that the discount under the FCPA corporate enforcement policy was for, at some point, disclosure of all known facts under the Yates memo, and then timely remediation. So we once again get the lesson that as bad as your conduct may have been, you can make a comeback and get a significant discount because it was somewhere in the range of 30 to $40 million worth that discount because of their cooperation. Some very interesting points that made for just great reading, but the larger lessons that we still learn from this case are you really have to look into every commission sales agent. Don't take anything for granted, even if it's not perceived to be a high-risk jurisdiction. Or I think in the case of China, it was a relatively small amount of monies that were alleged to be paid, yet that was part of this overall enforcement action. Very bad conduct, some very good and important lessons learned. But at the end of the day, Deutsche Bank made a comeback and they got significantly rewarded from that comeback. Some good lessons, I thought. Yeah, I agree. I think the your point about the discount is interesting. The documents do uh, do reference at least one of the recent, at the time recent, issues of misconduct by Deutsche Bank, I think a 2015 resolution regarding LIBOR manipulation. But as I alluded to, it's interesting how they framed it, because typically in the documents, they talk about discounts off of the bottom of the sentencing guidelines, of the sentencing guideline range. You have your federal sentencing guideline range, the discounts come off the bottom of it. And that's where you see a lot of these, a lot of companies are targeting it with their cooperation. That's what you want. That's what the corporate enforcement policy talks about. Is if you cooperate, you can get 25% off of the bottom of the guideline. They did not get that. They got, a, their ultimate number was somewhere within the range. The way that it was framed though, and I think this was an effort to split the baby a little bit to say, you're a recidivist, so we can't give you all of this credit. But what you did in response to this specific conduct and the way you cooperated and provided information and, and took corrective action. And by all accounts, they took very real corrective action and efforts to do root cause analysis and everything else is give you the credit by saying you're going to get 25% off the middle of that range. So it still falls within the range. It is still a discount because I, I the assumption there is that without having not done this cooperation and everything else, you would have gotten in the middle of that range. And as you said, we're talking about $30 million. So it's interesting in that sense. But I do think that the the recidivist aspect of this was taken into account. I think that's really the only way you can resolve that that issue about them starting from the middle of the guideline range rather than the lower end. I think it was ultimately taken into account. Uh, you, make a, uh, you bring up rather a really good point that we've touched on, I think, a couple of times, but it really bears out in this case, which is there are two discounts under the current formula. There's the U.S. sentencing guidelines where you can receive a reduction in your overall penalty based upon your cooperation, your basically fessing up and admitting liability, and your remediation. That's one discount. But you can also receive a second discount under the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. If you really do it right, you can stack those. They didn't do that here. Nevertheless, there are two opportunities for discounts, and they received that, that second one. And that's an important point, which it really leads to the question I've wanted to pose to you, Mike. If you or your colleagues are called in to this case, can you have a discussion 
with a client who's sustained a potential FCPA violation that there are significant values, both dollar or perhaps all the way up to a, an NPA, if you cooperate and meet the requirements under the FCPA corporate enforcement policy? Yeah, that's it's part of some of the initial conversation. What does this look like? Especially once you've identified that there's potentially a violation and you're at that stage. I think it's important as defense counsel that I think sometimes too often there's this, we have to cooperate. Let's give them, let's give them everything. Let's, you know, we're going to just roll over. And, and, and I think some clients get frustrated with that position because at the end of the day, you're advocating for your client, but you're really trying to, to come up with the absolute best result from your client under the circumstances. So we talk to clients. We talk to clients about the various factors, about the benefits to cooperation, about these specific issues. And I think more often than not, being forthcoming, being cooperative, picking your places to object to specific requests from the DOJ and the SEC, and then making where appropriate your substantive arguments is important. But where we've seen, and as we've been going back in these cases, Tom, where we've seen companies not get full credit, it's typically because maybe they delayed at the beginning for, to, to cooperate and came around too late. That's a worst case scenario, right? Because you're basically, you, you spend six months to a year not fully cooperating. You decide to cooperate. So you put in all the work, hand over all the materials anyway, but now you're not getting full credit for it. So it's really a conversation that needs to happen early on. And let's on. move to our next case. And actually, why don't we change the order and let's do Societe Generale next because it's closer, in fact, pattern to Deutsche Bank. So you want to describe this case. And maybe uh, the other thing that's going to hopefully strike our audience is the difference in fine and penalty that Sakjid sustained. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, this was a, I remember as this came out, I think the, the resolution was June 2018, but the sort of underlying facts had been discussed and been in the ether since for much earlier. Really, the Gaddafi regime in, in Libya was ousted and the new regime came in and started asking questions about this. And SOCGEN, which is a, a major global financial institution headquartered in Paris, agreed in June 2018 to pay a total of $585 million to both U.S. and French to resolve this. It was a coordinated investigation and into the scheme to bribe Libyan foreign officials associated with the Libyan Investment Authority, the sovereign investment fund in Libya. And this is really newsworthy for a number of reasons, and we'll get into some of those, including the involvement of the PNF in, in, in France in this case. This is one of the first where you could really feel the PNF take an active role. You I think if you look back historically, France was not particularly eager to chase foreign corruption. And, and this was one of the, their first really big victories here. The DOJ gave them a lot of credit for all the excellent work they did on this case. But the underlying, the underlying conduct here really started shortly after economic sanctions were eased on Libya in around 2004. And the Libyan Investment Authority went into the market and they were looking to invest some of their funds now that they could. And it, by some accounts, a uh, feeding frenzy of various financial institutions trying to get in the door and get some of this money that that Libya had to spend. And for, for Sokgen's part, both directly and through an indirect subsidiary, actually a, a subsidiary of one of their investment management companies, a company called Leg Mason, which is based not far from me in Maryland here. They, this company called Permal, basically, sim, as you said, it's similar to the Deutsche Bank case in that they use a third party. So what they did is they found a, an agent about a Panamanian company, and the idea was basically help us bribe foreign officials, living officials, 
to secure these investments. And they were wildly successful, by the way. I think total, they secured 13 investments and they were part of one restructuring, a total value of 3.6 billion. And they earned profits over 500 million on those deals. Just wildly successful with this scheme, if you want to call it that. Um, but early on, this was one of these cases where it was not an agent running wild. Early on, the promo employees and the, the SOCGen employees and executives knew what was going on with the agent. The agent was paying money, bribes to Libyan government officials, including allegedly the, I think Gaddafi's son was involved in receiving some of this money, allegedly. Um, and the one of the things that, that has come out in the press a lot, because as these stories have come out, is the, the terms that, that Permal and, and Sakjan had been were using, and they were using coded words such as cooked, meaning somebody who had received a bribe. They would call, I think somebody had the nickname the baker, somebody was the prince. And so it, it had, I think men in black was used as a term potentially for Libyan security forces. So they had been using code words, which always gets the attention of the media and the press. And so that was part of the big story when this was announced. And as I mentioned, it was very successful. Really what cratered the scheme was the changing of management at the Libyan Investment Authority. And they started asking questions. And at first, Sakjan and Permal provided false information to try to kind of paper the deals and make it look like the agent wasn't really involved or didn't get paid as, as he really did. And later, the, the, ultimately, the as audits started to reveal massive sums of money that, that were misappropriated, the scheme came to light. There are, we talk about compliance failures, there's a number of them in, in here. There was, as the agent was paid more and more and over the years, people started asking questions about it internally at SOCGEN. You had senior managers questioning the amount of money the agent was making just in relation to the service he was actually providing. Compliance personnel at one point raised concerns that basically about the arrangement, but we have a Libyan agent doing work in Libya that's getting paid through a Panamanian company and really not providing much in terms of proof of service. And this, and, but despite these things, they kept using him and the enterprising SOCGEN personnel tried to come up with other capacities to engage the agent through, whether it was a, a joint venture or, or sub-consultant type roles. Ultimately, this came out, as I said, starting around 2013 or 2014, the Libyan Investment Authority actually started filing lawsuits around, around the world against not just Sockgen, but other major banks alleging corruption and included the agent as a defendant in most of those. And that's when this story really started to build steam and break. And I think people in the in this space suspected that something was going to come and it ultimately did here in 2018. So the resolution for Sockgen, the fine amount was large. It was large at the time. It's large today, especially including that that I believe they also settled with a civil suit against uh, by the Living Investment Authority and paid an additional billion dollars to the Living Investment Authority. But they, as we discussed with some of these others, they, they took some appropriate steps after the investigation was started in terms of cooperating and making appropriate remedial steps. And they ended up getting, although the $585 million is a large amount, it's actually 20% off of the low end of the of the sentencing guidelines and the DOJ didn't, didn't require a monitor. So both of those things I think were successful for the end for SOCGEN, but there's a lot of there's a lot of lessons to pull out of this one. There certainly were. One thing that I thought was significant about this case, Mike, was it was the first time we saw significant cooperation close to a joint enforcement effort between the United States and the French anti-corruption authorities. That presaged Airbus a little bit, but it was really the first time we'd seen the French authorities on the international stage and for with a French company. So I think that was significant both for people 
on our side of the pond, but I have a lot of colleagues in the French compliance community, the anti-corruption compliance community, who really applauded this because they saw it was basically significant as things they've been preaching to French companies for many years. And certainly after Sapondu became law, they preached you need to be in compliance. And this was the first real significant enforcement action thereafter. So I thought that was an important part of this case. The breadth and scope of this bribery scheme, perhaps, as you said, I think you used the word feeding at the trough of Gaddafi and the corrupt nature of uh, an absolute power dictator and his family running everything may have lent to this. But Societe Generale had over $3 billion in, from these bribes, so they were in this for the long haul. And the lessons, though, if we look at them, Mike, they were almost the basics on agents. And last, or a little bit earlier, we talked about Deutsche Bank and some of the anomalies there. We had those same here. And this was, in terms of the bribery schemes, I really felt like it was almost bread and butter. And maybe that's the significance of something so big that is almost so bland. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. The other thing to keep in mind, the conduct here is at this point pretty dated. It was dated at the time of the resolution, right? 2018, the stuff, the, the conduct that happened 10, 12 years earlier. I, maybe this is just me being a, a bit optimistic or about how business has changed a bit. I, this was at a time when agents, companies were engaging agents and paying them commissions and just crossing their fingers and hoping for the best. Uh, and I think a lot of companies have wised up since then, but this was the heyday of it, right? The late nineties, early two thousands were the heyday of let's, this guy can help us get business. Let's engage him, pay him a commission, whatever he wants, cause it's going to help us get business and, and we'll make a profit on it. And as long as we don't know too much, we'll be fine. That was squarely, that was squarely in that space. One other thing I'll add before we move on is you mentioned the importance to the PNF and the French anti-corruption movement in this case. It, when you think about this, we're looking about this at this now after Airbus and that major success for the PNF as well. But this is coming not too far off the heels of some big sort of French companies having these FCPA resolutions and the, the French authorities were nowhere to be found with them. Technip and Total and Alstom and these really major... French companies who had these resolutions, and the, the PNF, although I think probably got credit for providing assistance, wasn't a sort of a, a co-enforcer. And so this was a big step. This was major news in France, and I think for the global anti-corruption community when the PNF was playing this meeting. You're absolutely right. And and sitting today in 2022, we don't really remember, perhaps remember that time, but there was withering criticism, particularly the Alstom FCPA enforcement action, both from not French authorities, but from French citizens and French businesses. Why is the U.S. enforcing this? And uh, this case in many ways began to change that discussion and narrative. Certainly, uh, I think Airbus foreclosed that or closed that d discussion, but this was a really significant enforcement action as almost a co-enforcement action with the PNF. Yeah, absolutely. So, Mike, we're up on 30 minutes. Why don't we hold off on the Credit Suisse because I just find that one so incredible, and we'll do that one later. Yeah, that, that sounds good. I do also find it incredible. And then maybe we can combine it with the Goldman Sachs piece, which is equally incredible. I look forward to discussing that at some time in the future. All right. 